Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Okay, so I think um, most of us are familiar. We have just, since the the day of Pentecost, which was May 28th, we've been working through um, that proclamation from Joel 2 uh, that Peter says uh, after um, the the fire and the wind and the shaking had come and uh, everybody was sort of speaking in each other's languages, feeling seen and heard heard and loved. Um, And he stood up and he said, this is what Joel said would happen. Uh, The Spirit of God, uh, I will pour my spirit out upon all flesh Uh, Your sons, your daughters will prophesy. Your old men and your young men will have dreams and visions. Even my slaves will prophesy. And then at at that point, beginning in verse 19, it sort of shifts to sort of a bit of an apocalyptic language where there's this kind of heaven and earth and, you know, the mighty, like it gets kind of, so we're just kind of segueing into that. But uh, today we've kind of broken that Pentecost text into a, you know, a text for each Sunday for the summer. And here we are in Acts 2:19. So I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. So this is sort of this prophecy from the book of Joel. And Peter says, see, this is happening. Uh, we are prophesying. We are having visions and dreams. And um, God said he would show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. And what I really loved about this series is that we've kind of just exploring like the fullness of the Holy Spirit instead of like a performance-oriented kind of power that we can summon to make us look good in our Christian performance, you know? Uh, the, the, no, it's not that kind of wonders and, and signs like with smog, uh, fog machines and big bands and it's like, see how awesome, like not that kind of wonder, but um, there's this this anticipation. And I think this this text of the Holy Spirit here in Acts 2, I don't know, I think if we kind of meditated and, and noticed the way the, politi- the, the Spirit is both like individual, also political, uh, just kind of this full big picture of who Holy Spirit is. Um, it's felt very, I don't know, healing and kind of subversive in a way, which I hope you know that the early church was very subversive. Um, so I want to talk about this because I think this is just something, a topic that Baptists would avoid. <laughs> Bless us. Signs and wonders. It's not necessarily a Baptist, like, yay. But I think when we actually meditate and explore what this meant in its original context and how this theme is throughout scripture, realize that all of us long for this and all of us have encountered this and we know that the heavens and the earth uh, are calling us to pay attention, to read them like a language and to expect to hear the voice of God. Uh, So I hope um, this kind of opens us to a new exciting idea. So first thing I have to say, um, when I began uh, exploring this theory, I looked up four words in Greek, uh, the one for wonders and signs. I just wanted to know if they were two different words and like where the word wonders appears throughout the Bible. So is wonders always like a miraculous thing or political or what? And then signs as well. And I also looked up the words for heavens and earth. And um, I think a problem we get into, and I'm going to focus on this in a little bit here, but um, when we think heavens and earth, we're thinking of the 21st century. So we're picturing like the globe in space, like this little blue ball. And then we're the cosmos. Maybe you're picturing like galaxies in the Milky Way. Though more likely you're picturing the earth, this kind of sphere, this globe, and heaven where angels are. Like the heavenly place and then this place. Um, But 
if you, you got to think, before they knew the Earth wasn't flat, and before they understood that like the Earth was moving around the sun, and all these kind of scientific things we know now, what would this mean to like a pre, uh, pre-scientific? Uh, there's a better word for this. Um, kind of pre-enlightenment. That's a, I'm like pre. Yeah, that's the one, pre-enlightenment. How would they have understood heavens and earth? And it turns out um, it would be just as accurate to say sky and land um, if you had kind of this sort of flat earth cosmology where there's waters above being held by a firmament and waters below being kept at bay by the, the ground and the mountains. You have the sky and the land. And suddenly when we begin reading this as if the sky and the land, uh, it can start to sound like some stories you hear from indigenous peoples and indigenous cultures about the land and sky. I was going to show, I didn't because I wanted to stay focused, but there's a music video, a song by Tribe called Red. It's really slow and it starts off and it says, we are the people of the land and sky. And it just says it and it's like, you do not see us. And it's like this really kind of prof provocative, prophetic like claim uh, of this indigenous nation saying, we are earth and sky. And I was like, that's very Acts 2. How Acts 2? How how? Hebrew Bible and, and Christian scriptures. So I want to kind of just show how the, these, well, I'm not, I'm just going to show it. Okay. So the first thing that you need to know, if you do a word search in the Bible and you want to know where the phrase signs and wonders appear together, like where, what are they referring to? What do they think about signs and wonders? Do they think about forest fires or thunder showers or what do they think about? And it turns out whenever you see signs and wonders in the Bible, it's a reference back to the book of Exodus the plagues, Moses and the plagues. This is the first place where you really see the, 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 what the plagues were before the Egyptian powers were signs and wonders, signs that the sky and the earth were revealing, whether it's hailstones or uh, the rivers turning to blood. It's a sign and a wonder happening in the sky and the land. So it's happening in the natural world. And you know that people who are in power, people who are in comfort and privilege, don't often pay attention to what's happening in nature. They're like, whatever, what's a tsunami or a forest fire? Like we kind of, and yet the people who live, you know, we know that climate change and, and big climate events affects often uh, poor people first. And so maybe uh, more indigenous people uh, and people who live in exploited lands are like, guys, the land is telling us something. Um, so it's it's interesting to think of the, the Exodus story through that lens of these major climate events happening and the Egyptian powers are like not really taking it seriously. And yet it is exactly the big awesome thing that God is doing to try and say, wake up, your power is an illusion. Um, so for example, you can go to the next slide. Um, I just wanted to show you two places where you can see the Exodus as the, the, the key reference to signs and wonders. So in Deuteronomy 26, um, Moses is speaking here about the Exodus event. And like Deuteronomy, it's still the, the wilderness generation, so it's somewhat fresh in their memory. It says, The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with awesome power, and with signs and wonders. In Exodus 4.21, so now um, Moses has encountered God in the burning bush, and he's going on to Pharaoh. The Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, make sure that you appear before Pharaoh and do all the amazing acts I've given you the power to do. Um, and the language there in amazing acts has sometimes also been translated signs and wonders. And the idea that Moses is going to go and um, perform signs and wonders for Pharaoh in the heavens above and the earth below. So... Uh, if you think about the Exodus story, maybe you haven't been in Sunday school for a long time, but you remember all of the ways that uh, the Egyptians or Moses or the Hebrew people experience God is through nature. There's a bush that's on fire. And I had a Hebrew prof at Ambrose named uh, Rod Remen, and he was the most hilarious, 
brilliant man, and I did not learn much Hebrew, but I learned amazing cool facts about whatever context of the book that we were studying was. And he taught us that in uh, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, the desert could be so extremely dry that really, really dried out like tumble bushes would spontaneously combust. And you would see this pretty commonly at certain points in the year, like it would just kind of like and then fizzle out because it's just so dry and so hot. So Moses just sees this natural thing that's a common thing to see, but this bush isn't burning up. That's weird. And he's drawn to that. Like this is just a natural thing you see occurring. Um, and then you have uh, the, the, the Nile River turns to blood. There's like a plague of frogs, like an infestation. There's an infestation of gnats. There's a hailstorm. There's locusts, like a migration of locusts, which eats all their crops and would really damage an economy that's based on, you know, your crops. So huge economic turmoil based on natural disaster. You would have um, a, a mighty wind that parts waters and reveals dry land. Um, you can imagine people kind of talking themselves out of thinking that's important. Uh, and then you have, when they get into the wilderness, um, there's manna, there's like food, like provisions, um, there's water from a rock. I don't know if anyone here has ever been lost in the wilderness. I'm like looking at you, Justin, you're probably the most risk-taking mountain adventurer. I don't know, but imagine being alone and stranded and, and discovering food and water and thinking you were going to die, but you're like, oh, wait, the land is feeding me. It would be a very profound experience that we wouldn't know about unless you'd actually been your survival depended on figuring out if the land can sustain you or not. These are the signs and wonders of the great Egyptian uh, exodus of the enslaved Hebrews from, from Egypt, is the land speaking. Um, and that, uh, obviously, the exodus event is about the liberation of enslaved people from a, a wicked kind of upper class or a wicked like empire, the Egyptians. And so remember, on the day of Pentecost, so here Peter is citing Joel, who's citing the exodus, See, everything's connected. And uh, we know that the New Testament very quickly moves after Pentecost in response to the Holy Spirit to Galatians 3, where we have in Christ there's no longer slave nor free, which is an allusion back to the Exodus. When the Spirit shows up, the, the, the category between enslaved person and liberated person dissolves. So like, if there's not an economic ground reversal like a new world order... Um, so there's this really powerful way that this kind of, the, the natural realm is showing us something that is going to uh, politically and economically devastate the, the system that we as we currently know it. Like those go together. Those are not inseparable ideas. It's profound. Um, so there's a quote by Willie Jennings about the, the early church and the day of Pentecost and this text here in 2.19. Uh, where he says, um, this text that Peter reads from Joel 2 proclaims a new world order energized by the movement of the Holy Spirit, breaking through on all flesh and destroying social orders that find slavery useful, stable, and capable of making fundamental differences of identity between would-be masters and would-be slaves. These slaves prophesy. God speaks through them, and they are to be obeyed. This new world order begins with collapse. God shakes the foundations, especially ones that wrongly claim divine imprint. And I thought that was uh, really powerful that sometimes, uh, yeah, that, that nature is communicating sometimes the voice of God to us, and we know that we are listening when it disrupts economic and political and social uh, systems that have been ordered against God's, God's design. So <clears throat> I, I wanted to show you a couple other beautiful things, and then... Um, we'll wrap this up in Joel 2. But we can go to the next slide. This idea that God is the creator of heavens and earth is a profound statement that I think uh, those of us you know, in Calgary in 2023 could kind of park at for a while. 
Because in the book of Genesis especially, there's a, a contrast between the God of the garden and the God of the city. The Egyptian uh, empire is rising in Genesis, and they have civilization and progress and technology, and they use enslaved people to build and forward and make progress and invent and manage and govern. And yet, the God of the garden can come in and kind of mess with the heavens and the earth, the sky and the land, which is his domain, until the Egyptian empire, which has tried to break with God's design, kind of collapses. And so when we're first introduced to God in scripture, it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God is the creator of earth and sky. That is God's domain first. It's not God's the creator of civilization or of humanity or of the mighty city or the military system. It's earth and sky, number one. Next text, did you know <laughs> the heavens and the earth are characters in the story, like actual beings with agency who can um, see and, and hear and speak. Uh, the texts like that are all over the scriptures. Uh, these are, are animate beings. They have a part. So, for example, in Deuteronomy 4, and this happens a bunch of times, but I wanted to highlight the kind of really obvious and interesting ones. Uh, God calls on the heavens and the earth as witnesses, um, like in court. Like, I was going to show the clip from Chronicles of Narnia, um, it must be in Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, where the children are scared because the white witch has spies everywhere, and the idea is like the magpies or the squirrels could report. And Narnia kind of uses it where like the white witch has used animals and nature too. Um, but interestingly, in our Bible, it's like, if I make a promise with Kathy, or we make an agreement that's really intense, and I'm like, these roses heard you make that promise. And then a year from now, turns out Kathy did not keep up her, her end of the deal, and she's like, yeah, I did, there's no proof. I'm like, well, I call these flowers to court. They were there. They heard it. They watched. What do the flowers have to say? And then the flowers start speaking. And they're like, we saw it. She did not do what she said. There's this idea that God's like, I'll call on the sky and the land because they can see. They know. So he calls them multiple times. And did you know, this is my favorite thing. Um, when I teach Isaiah at Ambrose, and I say that like a pro. I've done it one time. Um, hopefully, again, we're waiting. Depends. Um, <laughs> I, I try to ask students before we even open the text, I'm like, who is the book of Isaiah addressed to? And they're like, oh, the people of Judah, the people of Israel, God's people. I'm like, false. Not a word in the book of Isaiah is spoken to humans. The entire book of Isaiah, if you ever flip to the very first page, the first verse is like, Isaiah, son of Amos, to this, 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 this. And then when the actual oracle begins, it says, hear you sky and listen earth. For the Lord has spoken, I reared children, I raised them, and they turned against me. So it's like, I don't know, if you've ever had a parent was upset that you like weren't doing your chores, and then they pray in front of you, <laughs> you know, that one's like, dear Lord, please help my children learn obedience, and you're like, okay, we'll go do the chores. I kind of, it's this, this way that God is not looking at the people, he's looking at the sky and the land, and he's like, look at these children I raised. <laughs> they do not listen to me, it's so horrible. And the whole book, God is speaking to the sky and the earth as these witnesses um, and he, he's almost like weeping and grieving and imagining with the heavens and the earth about what could be, what could happen if his humans actually began to see and hear and feel. The whole book of Isaiah is addressed to the heavens and the earth. Th this happens all throughout. Um, just for time's sake, I won't uh, linger on this point, but there's actually one of my favorite things in the Bible is the way there's actually a lot of ways that trees and stones and rivers and plants and animals are kind of called on by God as God's servants. Um, in Joshua 24, once they've kind of conquered the land of Canaan, they bring this huge stone, and then they make a covenant and call on the stone as a witness. And that stone appears in 1 Samuel. It, like, becomes a sacred place. Um, there's also um, sacred trees 
uh, all throughout the book of Genesis, God makes covenant under these uh, oaks of Mamre, like there's a sacred tree, um, and the trees are witnesses, or they're like a holy place where you can encounter God. Jacob, Joshua, and several of the judges encounter the same tree that Abraham kind of would speak to, or God would speak to, or speak through. And so it's an important idea that God is very much a God of the heavens and the earth. Um, and one other just really cool fact I wanted to tell you. I was looking at the word for heaven in the Bible, just on, on some of my language software to see like where, what books the Bible does heaven focus on the most? Or sorry, does the word heaven occur the most? Because then you can get a sense of like what the books are about. And I found out that in the book of Psalms, heaven occurs 79 times. Job 35, makes sense if you think of the divine speeches. Isaiah 41. The whole book's addressed to the heavens and the earth, so I hope so. But the book of Matthew, 82 times. Why is Matthew talking about heaven and the sky? Well, um, Matthew's favorite phrase for the kingdom is not uh, the kingdom of God, but the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of the sky. The sky kingdom. That's the favorite one. It's only in Revelation 52 times. Like It's like God is the God of heaven, the God of the sky, the God of the land. So if God's going to encounter you and speak to you and disrupt systems, it's going to be through the sky and the land. Um, so this just, I don't know, and like we do land acknowledgments. Um, as a people, even outside of Awaken, a lot of us are, are coming uh, in contact with ideas around reconciliation and indigenous people and it be indigenous stewards of the land. And while that's going on in one part of my life and I'm studying the scriptures in the other, I'm like, you guys, this, the Bible is written by indigenous people for indigenous people. Um, and what I mean by indigenous people, I mean people who are intimately connected to the land and whose identity is caught up in the land and who long to live in the land for many generations and who understand that the land has been theirs for many generations and the way they make sense of themselves and the world and everything is land-based. The whole Bible is, is from a land-oriented people, um, an animist people, a people who understood that all animate beings, trees and rivers and flowers and beavers and magpies, that they're all in on the joke, you know? They're all in on the prank. Uh, and humans think they're not, and they're not important, but um, they are. And, and, and it seems that the book is written um, by people who exist in a creaturely way, as creatures among creatures. Uh, the incarnation kind of blows up when you realize God is creator become creature among a creaturely people, among all creatures. And uh, I, I just started to realize all the ways I have learned to connect with this land from indigenous people and the ways I've heard God speak to me through that journey. And I realized in the, the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, um, not only did they always celebrate and honor the Sabbath day, they also always celebrated and honored the new moon. And I'm like, man, have I ever tracked the moon? And I thought to become a person who notices the land would be someone who knows what time it is, who knows what's happening. What moon is it right now? Where are the constellations right now? What, where are we in relation to solstice and equinox? Um, like this, this way, like I realize indigenous, uh, a lot of different indigenous groups tell time by the moon. Imagine not having a clock or a calendar. Um, I know that uh, in Cree, for, for Cree nations, uh, the month of July is the molting moon. And I learned this because I have a pet goose that can't fly and we've been really afraid not knowing how to like help her live do we just bring her down to the river, but she could get eaten? We don't know, we don't know. And then like a month ago, she stopped eating and drinking and she's just hiding in the corner. And I'm like, oh, we're killing the goose. Very stressed. And I'm on Google. And guess what I learned as a Canadian my whole life, like fifth generation. Did you know that Canada geese molt for six weeks every year and they don't eat, drink, or fly? I had no idea. No idea. They literally fly here to lay eggs and molt. And I'm like, Hilda's just doing her thing, molting. 
I didn't, whoa. And then I go online for this sermon. I'm like, did you know that the July moon is called the molting moon? Because of course indigenous people knew that. I didn't know that. And then I started thinking about um, Tannis. That's why this picture's here. So Justin, you'll have to report. I know a woman, this is how it was going to go, who can tell you, she'll probably pull open a, a note on her phone, which day of the year the crocuses first bloomed. She knows, and she could say, this year it was six days earlier than the last three years. Like, she knows. I've seen her out there, and she's like, it was April 23rd last year. We're a day late. And she knows, and that inspired me, and I'm like, I would love to be someone who could tell time with the land and know, are the crocuses early or are they late? And I was telling my friend Kim about my friend Tannis and the crocuses, and she is a beekeeper. She lives in Boness, and she says, I can tell you exactly when the crocus comes, because the crocus is the first flower that awakens the honeybees from their hibernation. They can smell the crocus. And so the bees, the beehive will be all quiet and dormant, and one morning, a black cloud of bees leaves, and I will mark on my calendar, the first crocus has bloomed. Like, can you imagine being indigenous to the place you live and noticing that and knowing that? And then if the crocuses are late or the bees are late or the bees are early, to begin to be like, what is God telling us? That's a whole different way of connecting with the land. Um, Tannis one year, again, this is so great that she's here, taught me. She was like, oh, there was really crazy forest fires. And in August, it was like hard to breathe and go outside. But we had the sweetest Saskatoon berries we'd had in years. Something about the fire and the water and the sweetness of the berry. Um, I've noticed there aren't really a lot of mosquitoes this year, and I think it's because we had fire when we should have had rain. Um, I always know the day of the year when the robin first arrives, the first robin. Um, and then the last thing, because I wanted to give you a million examples, but I know we could go outside and actually start noticing and enjoying. So um, we were at a, a, a ceremony at Sutana uh, with a, a Blackfoot uh, friend named Grant, and he was talking about magpies and my little raven. Um, and he told us the coolest teaching. He said, you know why the magpies are really loud and squawky and annoying, and everybody in the city hates magpies? And I'm like, oh, they are very loud. Like, they're really loud in the morning. He said, well, I'll tell you why. And he said, it's because uh, the magpie, he's like, to our people represents friendship and loyalty. You see, the magpie's best friend was the buffalo. And that was his brother and his playmate, and they were thick as thieves, though, too, those two. And when the buffalo disappeared from this land, the magpie cries for the buffalo all day, every day, calling back his friend. And you watch, and he said to Raven, in your lifetime, you will see the buffalo are coming back, because the magpies have never given up hope. And then, like, even right now, I feel like I could cry. Because it was like, imagine growing up in that world where that's how you understood the magpie sound. That's how you understood the crocus and the Saskatoon berry and the honeybee. And you were like, what is happening? What time is it? Where are we? And what is God of land and sky speaking to us? Um, and so you can go to the next. Uh, I had crocuses and then I had Saskatoon berries. Because right now is the time. Notice how sweet they are and put it in your journal and then notice next year. Um, and then I just had other images about kind of big climate things that we see in the news right now. And I think if I had that connection to land, what would I feel God was saying through forest fires um, or in the next picture through the radical loss of biodiversity that we see all around us? And so in conclusion, um, I wanted to read actually... Uh, from Joel chapter 2. This is actually the first, uh, the few verses before our big Pentecost text, and I thought it might change how you understand Pentecost and the Holy Spirit if you knew what Joel was talking about. Um, so this is a, a prophecy addressed to the land in Joel. Uh, it says, Then the Lord became passionate about the land. 
because he saw the devastation of the empire. The land was being destroyed. Um, there was pollution and forest fires and all this stuff. Um, and, and he says, the Lord became passionate about the land and had pity on his people. The Lord responded to the people, see, I am sending you the corn, new wine, and fresh oil, and you will be fully satisfied by it. I will no longer make you disgrace among the nations. I will remove the northern army far from you and drive it into a dried up and desolate land, its front into the eastern sea and its rear into the western sea. Its stench will rise up. So there's political and natural. You know, this is a book of Exodus language here, just in case you're like freaked out by that. And then the, la the second half here I love so much. It says, the Lord is about to do great things. Do not fear, O soil. Don't fear, soil. I see the fires. I see the floods. I see all of the natural insects and organisms you need. I see them disappearing. Do not fear, O fertile land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord is about to do great things. Do not be afraid, animals of the field, for the meadows of the wilderness will turn green. The tree will bear its fruit. The fig tree and the grapevine will give their full yield. And if you keep reading, it says, and in that day I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is God consoling the land. He's like, I promise you, my, my beloved, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and the humans will start to prophesy and they'll see it and they'll come running and they'll no longer have time for slavery and sexism and fights about military budgets. They're coming. I'm sending them your way. And so I guess I just wanted to bless us and just say like if you've ever been like sometimes I just encounter God out there I'm like keep going God is speaking and falling in love and noticing the land paying attention uh, connecting to your fellow creatures becoming a birder becoming a plant person who can name them all becoming someone who knows exactly when the sun rises and sets Becoming someone who knows when the robins come and the V of geese leave is someone who's anticipating the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. It's anticipating that it's not the God of this city who's going to tell us what's happening next. It's the God of the sky and the land. So um, I'm going to pray, and then Kathy's going to lead us in communion. We pray uh, with our human language to the God of earth and sky, to the creator of heavens and earth. We ask that you would keep pouring your spirit out on all flesh. Uh, and if it is truly all flesh and not just human flesh, I pray that we would really start to expect to hear about you and learn about you uh, in what our fellow creatures are saying and how they're moving and what they're doing, how they're hurting and how they're celebrating. I pray that you would make us into a people who can genuinely weep with those who weep and celebrate with those who celebrate. Wake us from the dream of power and glory that we may be alive to the green earth that you love. We know you desire us and that you want to speak to us. And so take us to the places where we can trust your voice is singing out. We pray in the name of the incarnate king, creature among uh, creatures, Jesus Amen. Uh, as a benediction for today, I just wanted to read um, the first few verses of Isaiah 35 over you as a blessing. Uh, it's, it's my favorite text in Isaiah. May the desert and the parched land be glad. May the wilderness rejoice and blossom like the crocus. May it burst into bloom and rejoice greatly and shout for joy, saying the glory of Lebanon has been given to it the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. 
May they see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. May you know that God will strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, and say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. For your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, and he will come and he will save you. May you go from here in peace and confidence that God is speaking and calling us as his creatures to be seeing the world that is full of his glory. <laughs>